This episode of the Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico podcast is brought to you by Spectacle Eyewear. Now, if you've been watching any episodes of this podcast on our YouTube channel, you might have noticed I've been wearing some pretty cool specs lately. Well, you know where I get them? Spectacle Eyewear, 505 Tremont Street, Boston, Massachusetts. Their phone number is 617-542-9600. Head down to Spectacle. Go visit our friend Paul. You'll get yourself some cool specs. rock and roll yes we do <laughs> welcome to blowing smoke with twisted rico i'm your host steve ricardo that was the dogmatics with the awesome tune i love rock and roll we love rock and roll yes we do i think you know that already um i would love to have that as a theme song for the show i mean i know i got so pretty locked in right now but maybe we can have two theme songs i i think if i call the dogmatics up and tell them i want their song as my theme song i think they might give it to me uh, that's a great one. I love those guys, man. That whole family ethic rock and roll band really drives me. All right. We have a very interesting guest on the show today. Actress, 
uh, former punk rock kid, author, Christine Elise McCarthy. You might know her from her roles on Beverly Hills 90210, ER, Child's Play 2, and there's many, many more. She also wrote a great book called Bathing in the Single Girl, which evolved from a short film she created under the same name. I really dig that book. We talk about that in the interview. Uh, we're going to play that conversation for you shortly. So hold on, and we will be right back. Being the big vinyl lover that I am, I'm proud to tell you about Joe's albums in their two locations. The original shop at 317 Main Street in downtown Worcester, Massachusetts, and their second location out in Western Mass at 5 Market Street, Northampton. Both of these shops are loaded with both new and used vinyl. It's hard to walk in either shop and walk out empty-handed due to their amazing collection of records and other cool goodies like t-shirts, mugs, posters, etc. If you can't find what you're looking for in the retail stores, check out their website, joesalbums.com. Thank you, Joe, for being so cool. Yeah, Joe's Albums. Great place to go this time of the year, especially. I mean, you can go there all year round, but this time of the year, good time to go see Joe. I've been working on my year-end best of show, which essentially is starting to look like a best songs of the year list. I think I narrowed it down to 20 songs. There's so many different directions you can go in when you're coming up with these best of lists. It's more like my favorites, by the way. It's not like I'm the expert that can pick the best 10 songs of the year. I'm just giving you my opinion on what I think the best 10 songs are of the year. I did buy some new albums this year and, you know, I might put together some kind of an album list, but right now, uh, you know, I'm think I'm focusing on songs. The songs that you can expect to hear on that list will range from Crystal Canyon to Boy Genius. My tastes are pretty diversified these days. Generally, punk is probably my still my favorite genre, but I don't shy away from indie rock or hardcore or metal or even all country. There is so much good music that one day I could have animals by pink floyd on my turntable and the next day it could be caroline rose or caius you know uh speaking of best of lists by the way i've been looking at a lot of them and you would expect olivia rodrigo guts and boy genius to record at the top of many lists and they are it's not really a surprise the metal lists are really interesting i've saw i've seen lists that list anywhere from metallica to baby metal i know my friend kevin at um, the Chord Progression Podcast, loves baby metal. To Sleep Token, there's a real buzz on them right now, too, on their last record. Um, please stay tuned, because we're going to have our best of show probably about a week. All right, so check this out, this message out from Stomp Underfoot, and we'll be right back. Attention, guitar players. I know you're out there. I have some exciting news for you. You ready? Put down that six string and listen. Stomp Underfoot are handmade guitar pedals by fuzz-obsessed Matt Pascarella. Matt makes every pedal using quality new old stock, absolute and rare through whole components. I know you know what that means if you're a, you're a guitar player, right? Every pedal is also entirely hand-wired, tested, and ready to go. If you want high-quality handmade pedals, Check out Stomp Underfoot at stomponderfoot.com. I saw Christine Elise McCarthy in American Hardcore several years back, and I thought her recollection of the early Boston hardcore scene was really good, you know, mostly talking about SSD. And also, like I mentioned, read her book, Bathing in the Single Girl. It was really good. Very dirty, uh, in a good way, though. Dirty in a good way. I thought she'd be cool to have on the show. You know, the punk rock background, the the author, the actress. I mean, being an actress or an actor, as we like to refer to all actors, is not an easy lifestyle. It's very difficult. When I was in L.A., my early years in L.A., when I first got there, I became friends with a lot of actors that were struggling. You know, most of them were, had other jobs and they were just doing whatever they could. It's not an easy profession. 
uh, to go. And I almost did it. I thought about it, but, you know, I realized the music industry was, you know, <laughs> dark enough for me. I didn't need to go into another dark industry. And I mean that in a nice way, you know. Anyways, we covered uh, quite a bit in our conversation, and I'm I'm really glad that she agreed to come on the show. So I'm going to play it for you right now. Here I am chatting with Christine Elise McCarthy. Welcome, YouTube users. This is Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. If you want to hear this entire show with intros, outros, and music, please go to Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, or wherever else, wherever else you listen to podcasts. All right, please welcome to the show, Christine Elise McCarthy. Hello. It's kind of funny because I feel like I know you so much better than I actually do because... I know I've known your mom, Gail and Alvin for so long since like the nineties that yeah. I feel like I, I know all of, I hear all about you all the time because yeah. Alvin's a very close friend of mine. So. Yeah. Alvin's so a king, he's a king among men. So, um, so I wanted to talk to you about your early days. I mean, you grew up right in Boston, right? I'm from Roslindale. So Roslindale is part of the city of Boston proper. I went to Boston public schools. So yeah. What was that like? Did you enjoy going to school in Boston? Um, well, I mean, that's the only school I ever went to, so I don't have anything to compare it to. Uh, I was a bookish kid. I was a big reader and I was good at school, you know, so that, there was that. Um, and I went to, I got bused. I went through the whole busing thing. I started getting bused in fourth grade. Um, but fortunately, I got into Boston Latin, which is seventh to twelfth, so I didn't from fourth, fifth, sixth grade, different school every year because I was in the um, I was in the advanced classes, uh, and there was only one class per grade in the seventies. One third grade class, one fourth grade class, you know, and so and it would change schools every year. So I went to a different school every year for a while. But then Boston Latin is seven to twelve, so I was planted there for six years. So and yeah, I mean, I I didn't hate school. Were you were you like involved in a lot of activities? Like, did you know at a young age that you wanted to be an actress? I never wanted to be an actor. I never wanted to do anything that involved performing or being judged by other people. Um, I was always super, super shy, despite the way I presented, you know, being super punk rock and sort of seeming to invite a lot of attention and um, and uh, derision. Uh, but um, no, I, I didn't do anything like that. I, I went in school. I was really shy. I, the minute I could have a job after school, I did. So I worked 20 hours a week. I know from the time I was the day I turned 16 until I graduated. So that was my extracurricular shit was just uh, work and then going to shows and hanging out with people on Newbury Comics. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on this show is because of your association with the Boston hardcore scene. And I, I just had uh, Jamie and Chris from SSD on. And Jamie actually said, when I said that you were coming on the show, Oh, she knows it all. She knows everything that happened. Yeah, <laughs> so, I watched that. I watched it last night, actually. Oh, and, you did. Um, I did. And Chris Foley, Chris Foley must have done like 95% of the talking, uh, which is interesting because I always think of Chris as being sort of a background, quiet, shy guy, too, you know? And uh, But he was chatty. He was chatty, chatty. It was a fun interview. He was fantastic, I thought. Um, how did you get involved with that scene and those guys? Um, I was already going to clubs uh, with my parents, going to see, you know, bands from back in the day, like the Neighborhoods and Mission of Burma and, you know, uh, Lou, De Lou, Lou Miami and the Cosmetics and all the old school pre-punk rock, like or, you know, new wavy Boston punk bands. Uh, and the only other underage people that I ever saw at those shows were Springer and Michael Patrick McDonald. Michael I knew from school because he went to Latin as well. Um, this is just the three kids that the three of us kids, though, ever on the scene, there was not like any kind of a youth culture, you know, I was always the youngest person in the room by a lot. I think the drinking age then was had just turned to be 21, too. So I was very young to be 15, 16 to be in at Bun Ratties and at the Rat and the channel and stuff. Um, and so I was at Al and I, Alvin and I, my stepdad and I went to see the Dead Kennedys at the channel. And the week before, I've been walking down the street by the Prudential, and 
a kid across the street was walking the opposite direction and was staring. And I said, what the fuck are you looking at from across the street? And that's all that happened. And so here we are standing against the wall, Al and I at the channel. And a, a guy walks up and goes, hey, did you yell what the fuck are you looking at at me from across the street by the Prudential last week? And I said, that was you? He goes, yeah. And that was Jamie Sharapa. Um, oh, that's funny. And he said, no, I wasn't staring at you because you know, you look like my ex-girlfriend. And I'm like, yeah, that's the worst pickup line I've ever heard. That's so fucking cheesy. Get lost. Um, he's like, no, really? And so uh, within within two weeks, I was calling Jamie Sharapa my best friend. So, so I got into that. And that was pre-SSD. So Jamie and I were like going to see going to the spit and to Metro and stuff. And you know, all the clubs that were back then because Jamie was old enough. He wasn't old enough. He was 19. He must've had a good fake ID too. Anyway, I was hanging out with Jamie. So before the whole hardcore scene even existed. So I was, I, I was sort of in with the in crowd when it did develop, I was Jamie's sidekick. So, and everyone loves Jamie. Jamie's an awesome person. I still can, I still consider him my oldest best friend. And, you know, if anyone out there is wondering why I'm asking Christine about this, she was in the film American Hardcore, which I thought you were great in. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you're you always really honest no matter what you do. That's what I re really like about you. Because we're going to talk about your book and stuff later. But you were very honest about that. I remember you said they weren't a fun band. And it's it's true because I remember that too. People look back at SSD now and I, don't, I think they must have a – memory loss or something about how they remember the band um were you you must have went to a lot of their shows yeah most of them because i was dating springer springer was my boyfriend for two years in high school so my boyfriend and my best friend are in the band and and then and then this whole group of young men mostly men were hanging around that were my age so i had and didn't drink and i didn't drink either and so it was uh it was you know it was a sort of a love fest for me right away with all those guys so you were part of the straight edge scene. Yeah, except that I did acid occasionally with Springer. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, your mom is a very well-known photographer, and she shot some iconic photos of the Boston crew. Were you around when she was doing those sh shots? But obviously, I facilitated that. She did. I was the entree for her. <laughs> she wouldn't have had a chance to shoot them. I knew you had to be around, but I was... <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. What do yeah. you remember about those photo shoots? Because they look really cool. Um, well, there's a whole bunch. There's some that were shot in Roslindale Square. The ones with the van in them were in Roslindale Square. And then there was a whole bunch down in the combat zone when the combat zone was still a thing. Um, you know, there's just goofy guys. I mean, I, I think I, I said in American Hardcore, um, they're just a bunch of like nice, well-raised, raised right boys from suburbia that uh, were sort of, afraid of girls and um, looked much tougher than they actually were. They're just a bunch of goobers, you know, except for maybe Al, Al Burrill, who was not a goober. <laughs> um, there's a big buzz on them going on here 40 years later. Does that surprise you? Because it surprises no. some, doesn't surprise you at all? No, because people are super nostalgic for that. I mean, people that were around are nostalgic for it, and people that missed it are nostalgic for it. Like, I'm nostalgic. I wish I hadn't missed Janis Joplin and, you know, and James Brown, who's well, actually, I could have seen James Brown, somehow missed him. But, you know, when you miss something as important as like the whole Janis, the Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and that sort of scene, you have a nostalgia for it that's just sort of created in your head for missing something so important. And then those people that were there that, you know, they have that nostalgia i'm a, I'm a sentimental person so um no i'm not surprised yeah it's i think it's fantastic that they're getting all this attention um did you go to college after you finished high school i went to bu for a year i went to film school at bu i thought i wanted to be a director is what i thought i wanted to do um blade runner had come out and i thought and i was always a film noir fan i was a big collector of uh pulp fiction paperback pulp fiction from the 30s to the 60s and uh sorry about that my don't have to turn those jingle things off on my laptop um uh and uh i was a big fan of old hollywood and when i saw blade runner and you know like the maltese falcon and the big sleep and those the killing and those big awesome film noir films i thought that uh blade runner was a reinvention of film noir and i thought that inspired me to think i would like to go on and carry that baton and reinvent and bring you know film noir back to the fore um but i went to school there for a year for reasons that are too boring to get into um 
I hated them. I hate I, actually the reason is I had to take a I had to take a science class. I took computer programming. And so I took this is like when you're writing code in Pascal, multiple languages existed back then. I don't know which one I was studying. I think it was Pascal. But um, nobody had computers. It was a computer lab at school you had to use. And I and it was the hardest class I've ever taken in my life. I'd never been really particularly challenged by anything at school. It always came very easy to me. And so this, and I would, this thing, right when I'm about to tear my hair out and think I can't fucking do this, I would solve it and be able to, and, be, and write the program. And I was so thrilled by that. I wanted to take whatever that class was called, computer programming 201 after 101 as my second science um, prerequisite. And they wouldn't let me. They said, no, you got to take a, a different 101. You got to take astronomy or astrology, or, you know, whatever, a different, another science class, another 101. And I go, what well, doesn't make any sense? Why shouldn't I just progress into deeper into this course of science? And they wouldn't let me. They made me take it as an elective. And I was a film major. So I, 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 and I did, I took a fucking computer class instead of a film elective. Um, and then I got a terrible professor and I tanked that class it was awful. So I just had a really bad taste in my mouth for BU. I didn't like that they were so rigid. And, uh, and then I thought, hey, it doesn't make sense to finish film school in a town that has no film industry. So I thought I'd move to LA. I'd be, it was like 12,000 a semester or something back then. I think it's like a hundred now. <laughs> but, um, but before Reagan undid it, California schools, UCLA and UC, uh, USC, were state schools for like $600 a semester. So I thought I'd move to California, take a year off, establish residency, and go to film school in a town that had a film community and go for school for much less money. That didn't happen. I had to get a job for $6 an hour and I didn't have a car, didn't know anybody. And that's not how my path ended up going, but that was my plan. Did you get to do any film, like any in work on any independent films or do anything in Boston at all? It was nothing like that. Boston was a music scene. I was well, you know, neck deep. If I wanted to do music, I knew everything and everyone about that, but I didn't want to do music and I'm not a musician. So no, there was nothing. There was nothing. I'd never, I've never known an actor. I didn't talk to the kids that were in drama club at school. I, I just zero entrance to anything film in Boston. What, when did you decide, like, did you go and visit LA and decided you wanted to move there or did you just say, I'm going to LA and what year around was that? Did that happen? It was 84. In the summer of 82, I went to, I came to LA with Springer for a vacation. Uh, the next summer of 83 was the tour that SSD did with GBH. And I was on, I was, did the big, I did the whole California leg of that up and down California. Um, and I just, and I always loved it here. and knew I wanted to be here eventually. I just didn't think I would do it at 19 in, in 1884 by myself with $3,000 and didn't know anybody and I didn't have anywhere to live and didn't drive, didn't have a driver's license. And, you know, I came here and it was scary. And I, and I cried every day for a year. Oh, let me go back for a second here. So when I have to ask another music questions, because that's an interesting thing you brought up. So was that the first time SSD went to California? I it, I think it might have been. Yeah, I think I, I so. It would have come and Springer would have been here and I wouldn't have been with them. So, I, yeah, I think that was. Yeah. What was that like? It was awesome. It was awesome. Where You know, girls weren't allowed in the van. Um Nancy Burrell will deny that that's the case, but Al Burrell uh, always had a, uh, a bone to pick with me. He hated Springer from the beginning, and um, the fact that I was with Springer made, does. I know the fact that he, that I was with Springer made Al hate me by you know by association. So Al had no respect for me, um, and uh, so there's no girls in the van. Even though I think both Nancy and Angie, maybe even Bridget, will. Uh, Denied that's the case, but at least I wasn't fucking allowed in the fucking band. So anyway, I don't even remember how we got ourselves around because we were going from, you know, Los Angeles all the way to like San Francisco. So with Jake Phelps and Andy Strahan and um, mm -hmm. Andy, Andy was another best friend of mine. So it was great. It was like a, an incredible adventure, an incredible punk rock adventure with a bunch of guys I knew and trusted completely. And I saw a bunch of iconic bands of the era and yeah and lived on andy Pop. from dys you're talking about right yeah. yeah wow that's great you were around like the whole crew back then uh you no, said andy strahan and tony perez choke choke and i i was friends with choke but the andy and tony were like still a family to me um but i was friendly with choke yeah i mean i was there and they were all it was a it was a 
brotherhood, Dave Smalley, everybody. Um, and I, because of because of Jamie Sharapa, I was just in, completely embraced by all of them, with the exception of Al Burrell and maybe Jake Phelps, who was just the scariest person I've ever known. Uh, I know Liz, Tony's uh, sister, because Tom Wilson's a very good friend of mine. Uh, and I know Tony was one of the original Boston crew guys. Uh, when, when was it in 1984 that you moved to L.A.? Where? When, when in 1984? November 29th. I moved there January 4th, 1984. I bought a one-way ticket from here as well. Wow. I went out there to work in the music industry, and that's what I ended up doing, working for record labels. Wow, it's fun. We didn't know each other, obviously, back then, but that's interesting. Did you go to see SSD when they played at the Olympic Auditorium with Suicidal in 1984? Yeah, they were in the metal. They were in their metal phase then, which I was completely not about. Um, I didn't. A lot of those kids came to punk rock through metal. Uh, you know, um, I did not. So I didn't come to hardcore through metal. I came to hardcore through the broader punk rock scene. You know. So metal seemed like a big backwards move to me. Spring with long hair. Yeah, that know? show was really hard to to watch. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'll never forget seeing him come out on stage with that hat on and stuff. And I was like, yeah. "Oh my god!" Yeah. Um, I imagine you must have seen a few November group shows. <laughs> very, very, very many, very many. Yeah, and they would open. They were opening for everybody that mattered back then, like Men Without Hats and Billy Idol and Gary Newman and. Julian Cope and like anybody that came to town that uh, teardrop explodes, that kind of stuff, they would open for them. So I got to get a lot of, uh, I went to a lot of shows. Yes. It probably spit Metro channel, all those places they played. And they play like those beach shows too. Like not Nantasket, but what's the other beach place that has like, they would have shows up there. Maybe it was Nantasket, but beachy communities. that would, they Well would fleet maybe. Well, no, no, carnival like 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 with a carnival on the beach kind of place like nantasket maybe it's nantasket but uh that sort of thing yeah many many and i was a huge november fan i loved them um i was a big down avenue fan as well i saw november group a few times they were great i didn't know alvin back then but i did go see the shows so you moved out there in september in 84 with what when you got there where did you live and what was your plan did you have a plan you said I, you were alone a lot and cried a lot. I did. I did. Andy Strahan came with me for the first two weeks. So Andy and I came out and um, I had rented uh, a hotel by the week on just north of Hollywood Boulevard on Whitley, right where the Fredericks of Hollywood used to be on Hollywood Boulevard, like the side street up there. It was like a Motel 8 or something. And I stayed there for like a week. Alvin has a brother that lives out here and he lived out here at the time. Um, and he and I assumed that Alvin's brother and I, he's like my uncle, that we would that I would have at least him to hang out with when I got here. Um, he helped me. He, he tried, this is another weird story. The short story is he got some friend of his to let me stay at his house for another week, and then I found an apartment. So it was within two weeks I had my apartment. But uh, Al's brother was like, "Yeah, um, I can't, I can't like be some surrogate father for you. So like, never call us." <laughs> and so the only person I knew here. It told me not to lose the phone number. He doesn't <laughs> so. sound like his brother at all. And it's a really weird thing. I love his name. His, his name is Kevin. I love Kevin. I don't know what, I, he doesn't remember it like that. But that is what happened though. So yeah. And so I took the bus everywhere for two and a half years too. I got a job in Beverly Hills as a cashier and I took the bus from my, my first apartment was at Sunset and Normandy where the original wow. Zanku, the original Zanku was there, right? Um, like half a block south of that Zanku. And uh, I was there for, four years, I think. Um, it just got torn down this year. That building got torn, a little bungalow got torn down this year, but uh, that's where I landed. And um, I took the bus all the way to Beverly Hills every day to work for $6 an hour. I, when I got there, I lived in Hermosa Beach. So I was in the South Bay, but I just was there last year. I try to go there as often as I can, but I didn't go for a period of time. I can't believe how different LA is compared to the eighties. Wow. Boston's worse. Yeah, true. Were you, so, are you surprised how much LA has changed? No, it's inevitable. All cities changed. I mean, and it's not all for the it's not all for the worse. You know, uh, Boston's changes really bummed me out. 
but because um, they feel really abrupt to me. I don't I don't go to Boston often, so the changes feel like oh my god, like I don't recognize Kenmore Square and I don't recognize Boylston Street. And here it's more gradual. It's like watching somebody get older, get fat. It happens slowly, so you don't really notice it until you know you see a picture from the past. So you said you had that you know, shitty job, or I don't know if it was a shitty job, but you didn't make a lot of money. Were you, what was your plan at that point? Were you thinking about acting? No, I, I don't know how I'm, I no, I never wanted to be an actor. Never, 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 wow, never, never. Really? No, I wanted to be a filmmaker. I wanted to be involved with filmmaking. I didn't think I could ever perform because I was shy and this is not a thing that I didn't know anyone that ever did it, even in school. Um, just not my thing. And, um, so I was going, I thought I'd go to film school after work. So I went to LACC, LA City College for a semester or two, taking a class or two after work. work and it was like, okay, in 16 years, I'll have a fucking degree from LACC. Who cares? Nobody will care. And it's too slow. What else can I do? And then I thought, oh, if I'm going to be a director and I'm going to direct actors. I should take an acting class. So I understand what actors are doing and then I can speak to them in, in a language with some in informed language um, and enjoyed it more than I ever thought I could, even though it terrified me. I, I was terrified the whole time and then I would leave the class elated and excited for the next week. And then by the time the next week came around, I was shitting my pants afraid again. But um, I thought, hey, you know, this is what, what better way uh, with no skill, no training and no talent, what better way to get in the film industry than be an actor? So. I decided to try it that way. And because I was 21 or 22 or whatever and looked 15, really genuinely looked 15, which makes me, when I was 15, getting into nightclubs where you had to be 21, I still looked 15 when I was 21. Imagine how, long, how young I looked when I was 15. <laughs> um, but I played high school. I, I started working right away and I, I played high school for like a decade. You <laughs> <laughs> do you remember how, like you said, you know, do you remember how, what that first job was? I mean, I think I heard somewhere China Beach was one of your first gigs. It was an early job. It was an early job. Not my first. My first was a movie of the week um, called The Town Bully about a true story about some guy that was in some small towns. It's a pretty interesting documentary about it, uh, who was just this fucking asshole that was like seducing high school girls and stealing people's sheep and, you know, just being an all around bad guy. And the town got together and killed him and they never found his body or anything. <laughs> uh, that's what really happened in the movie of the week, of course, Bruce Boxleitner was the cop and he had to, you can't have people get away with a crime in 1980s TV. So that had to be resolved and people had to be caught for the crime. But in reality, that didn't happen. And yeah, so that was my first job ever. And then a writer's strike happened in the middle of that. So then there was no work to be had for a couple of months. And um, I did like head of the class and um, the same casting director for head of the class and China Beach is the same guy named John Levy. So John was a big fan of mine. So, and John also cast ER, which I did. So I, John Levy did gave me most of the mo more important things on my resume. Were those all before 90210? So, because you were on ER for a while, right? Well, ER was after nine or two and zero. So, I was on ER for a whole season, season two. That was 96 season. Nine or two and zero was I got that in end of ninety one. So that was ninety one, ninety two. At Chucky, I, I did in eighty nine. How did you get the role of Emily Valentine on nine hundred two one zero? Because that was a pretty important role for you. Yeah, um, I, I got it because. Um, I Is that on your not... end? Yeah, it's me. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I was like, what was that? It's it's Blair William Borden, another <laughs> Boston crew guy. Uh, mm. The only one that still lives in LA with me, uh, texting me. Um, uh, how did I get it? Oh, the standard way, you know, audition, like that my agent goes, you have an audition, you know, and back then there was no fax machines or anything. So you had to go to the location, pick up the material for the audition, go home. And then maybe it was later that day or another day in the week. And then you go in and drive in again and, and do it. Um, the, the proto, the casting, the breakdown of this character was described as Julia Roberts, gorgeous, drop dead, beautiful, cascading red hair, curly hair, and um, like another popular girl. And um, I looked like this basically with like two inches of black roots. And I, I went in as me, which I did for most of the jobs that, uh, that mattered to, on my career. ER, same thing happened on ER with the pro, like the, ca the casting description for the character on ER was Helen 
Hunt from Mad About You. So Helen sort of Hunt. Super straight and very preppy yeah. and like that. Um, I can't do Julia Roberts and I can't do preppy. I didn't, actually didn't know the preppy description. I, I got the appointment last minute. And, and so anyway, I go in with myself. I went in with my hair with the roots and jack boots on and red lipstick. And I'm just like my, you know, post-punk version of me. And um, in both cases, they changed the character to be me. <laughs> and so if, on that or two, I know that Emily Valentine played guitar and sang and drove, rode a motorcycle, none of which I can do, which is why after the first episode, she doesn't do any of those things ever again, because I couldn't do any of them. I lied and said I could, but I couldn't. What what was it like for you being around that crew at that time? Uh, intimidating, really. I mean, they were a phenomenon at the time. They were like on the cover of Rolling Stone and stuff. They were like a legit phenomenon. Um, and they were sort of around my age, you know. Um, the only other show I'd ever done with people my age was Head of the Class. Uh, those people... The, actually, it was weird. It was the opposite of that show that it was on, on 9 or 2 I know. The girls on... Uh, head of the class for were sweet. The boys were really mean, um, and it sort of flipped on men or two. the boys were really nice, and the girls were sort of mean. Actually, I, I that my calling them mean has sort of evolved. It wasn't that they were mean; it was that they weren't warm and fuzzy. Which is that why should they be? You get an acting job, and you don't do it to get to make best, to go home with a bunch of new best friends. You go to do a job, and and you know you you rarely keep a person from a job. You work and you go home and you never talk to them again until you work with them again. Um, so it wasn't like I went there going, oh, I hope they'll all love me and we can all have a bar, you know, barbecue. Uh, but the girls were completely indifferent to me, which when you're insecure and intimidated, people being indifferent feels like hostility, you know, because the world revolves around me. And if they're not paying attention to me, it must mean they hate me, which isn't the case. Uh, but yeah, so uh, but I, I, Jason and I ended up becoming a couple, and I lived with Jason for five years. So, uh, and they're still family to me to this day. He and his wife and kids are family to me. And so, so yeah, it was intimidating at first, but it got to be not. So, so um, had you reached the point now that you actually wanted to be an actress or an actor? Yeah. It, once I decided to pursue it, and that was that. It was super focused, and um, then I got. Then I got on sets and I saw what directors do and I was intimidated by that. Being an actor is the easiest job on set. It's every, everything else is done. They found the location. They wrote the, the words for you to say. Someone does your hair. Someone bought you the clothes. You know, they feed you. All you got to do is say some words. It's, it's nice work if you can get it. Did you know after that season ended that your role was over? Or did you think that you it was going to be a recurring role? When I did the first episode, they said it's one, and if it goes well, it could be as many as 10. Um, same thing happened on ER. They said, we'll give you one, and if it goes well, there could be more. So in both cases, they apparently went well, because I, I kept going. I, I thought when the character, actually, here's what happened on 90210. The character arc ended, and I'd never had a, a guest star spot go on beyond what the original deal was, so I had no expectation that, that this would be different. Um, but I complained to somebody at some point and said, oh, I know, I didn't like what, in the drug episode, the euphoria episode where I give Brandon drugs, I didn't like a lot of what they were having my character do. And Jason tricked me into calling Aaron Spelling. Jason had like the only cell phone in America. and said, here, I'll call Aaron for you. Here, talk, tell Aaron you don't like it. And he hands me the phone. And I'm like, oh, uh, uh, hi, is Aaron Spelling there? Who's calling? I say, Aaron takes the call, which... It's unbelievably generous of him. He's like, yeah, what's going on, honey? I'm like, oh, Emily's character, she's going crazy. I don't like it. And they're, she's doing euphoria. And they want me to sing the words euphoria to the tune of Gloria. I don't know which Gloria, because there's many Glorias. But uh, all of this is so dumb. I, I can't handle it. He's like, don't worry, sweetie. We're going to we're gonna redeem her. She'll, you know, it'll, it'll be okay. I'm like, yeah, but he's like, don't worry. We're going to give you a spinoff. And I was like, what, what? 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 He's like, yeah, have I ever lied to you? I'm like, well, you've never spoken to me. So you never had a chance to lie to me before, but okay, bye. <laughs> and they did. They gave me, the spinoff was Melrose Place. They, I was the spinoff character for Melrose Place. And um, I had meetings about the whole thing and they described what my character would be up to and what the other, it would be Emily Valentine on Melrose Place. And um, it was very, very, like there's only like three more episodes that we're going to shoot before the end of that season. And um, I thought I had a particularly strong negotiating position because there was nobody else to spin off. 
And I was afraid of doing the show because I was pretty sure I wouldn't like the show. Um, but I was also afraid everyone thought I got 90210 because of Jason, but that's not, I met Jason on the show. I got the mm -hmm. job. I knew that for, if, if I did Melrose Place, that everybody would forever think I've only ever worked because of my connection to Jason, which is a bummer because it's not true. It wasn't true then. And, um, and I'm like, I envision like every Emmy, Emmy, every Emmy's like, here's Jason Priestley from 90210 and Christina Lee's from Melrose Place. And you know, that sounded gross to me too. So I asked for a lot of money and they're like, yeah, no. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye, bitch. And uh, and they just wrote a new character in, and they wrote the character of Jake, who Grant Show ended up playing, and they spun him off, um, which is great. Uh, I wasn't something I regretted. I, I didn't, as I as I thought, I didn't. I was never a Melrose Place fan, um, so it wasn't like I was watching that show going, damn. It wasn't like I was watching Friends and and I passed on it, you know. So, um, yeah, that. Wow. Um, another really interesting thing that happened in your career was Child's Play, too. I mean, you're still kind of involved with the whole Chucky thing. How did that all come together? Because that's pretty different than what you were doing. In what way? Well, maybe not as an maybe not as the role, but it was a different kind of film. It was not a happy, not as happy, I'd say. You know, it was more of a thriller. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I hadn't done a whole lot of work up to then. And China Beach was already under my belt. And China Beach is dark as fuck. Um, so yeah, I was, I'm I'm a drama actress, not a comedic actress. I, I um, I've done mostly drama stuff. I feel most comfortable doing drama. So I don't. I didn't, and as the same character I always play, which is that misunderstood, offbeat, tough chick with a heart of gold that's been my stock and trade for a long time, or was then. You know, so it's very much the same. I was uh, thinking more in a ho the horror. John. Yeah, but you know, you, that's not what you're thinking about when you're when you're on a set and you're working. You're not thinking about an audience watching it or what. You're just playing a character who's in a real moment, and the in this the moments there where a doll was trying to kill me. But you know, it's it's a, it's no more fake than doing a love scene with someone you don't like. So in fact, it's easier than that. So the hardest thing in the world to do is love scenes at all. Love scene with someone you don't like is even worse. So. Um, yeah, no, it's just work. Work is work. And work, people ask, is it harder to working with a doll than a person? No, it's all it's all so fake. And all and all, and, and there's a crew that you're not the audience never sees of 75 people that are all standing around watching you do it. And um it's also incredibly fake that it's all the same ultimately when you're doing it. And so I got that job uh the same way and others. I got I auditioned, didn't actually get it the first time. And they decided to see people again that they had seen that had been near misses. And uh, when I went back, I had in, in, in between the two auditions, I had gotten an episode of 21 Jump Street and an episode of Baywatch, the old Baywatch pre Pam Anderson. And I was on the set of Baywatch when they called and said, do you want to come back in and try again? And so I did, but I had to be on set in Malibu at like 930 in the morning. So they had to come in really early, like at 8, 830 in the morning to have the audition for me. And I was just like, yeah, let's get the show on the road here. I got somewhere to be. And I had so much more confidence the second time because I had a job. Um, I think that the attitude that I had mm -hmm. uh, got me the job. That's great. Um, I want to go ahead a little bit here because I watched your, um, which is actually an award. You won a lot of awards for it. Your short film, Bathing in the Single Girl. I rewatched it again last night because I know I'd be talking to you. It's really good. Um, but this, my little prop right here, this book that came out of that film is absolutely fantastic. Thank you. I mean, it's been a few years since I read it, but I remember the premise of it. And it was like, you didn't hold anything back at all in the book. Um, it's different. I mean, it's the same as the film, but it's way more elaborate. Um, how did that all, when you did the short film, was it because you got good feedback on that that you decided to do the book or were they? No, I, what happened was I, there was a, um, there's a theater here right near my house called the Upright Citizens Brigade. And they were doing a thing there for a long time called Four Stories in a Cover. And it was four people reading like a 2000 word comedic essay about their life. And then somebody doing a funny cover of a song. So Four Stories in a Cover. And I would go to it all the time. It was fucking great. And so a writer friend of mine, a girl, she said, hey, we should both write something and submit and see if we can get involved in this. And so I said, okay, I'll do it if you do it. I did it. She didn't do it. Uh, they did 
they did let they did accept mine. So I got up there and I read basically with the short the short film. I just read that, uh, which is why it's it breaks the fourth wall. Why I address the audience in the short film is that's what I was doing in real life, reading it in front of an audience. I was addressing them uh, in the telling. So um, I. I did it and the friends that saw it were like, that was really funny. You should, you should have recorded it so you could show your agents that you can be funny. I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. So I did it again at another theater called Naked Angels and recorded it. Bullshit, just, you know, you know, recording. And then I posted that on Facebook and a, an A-list director of photography a guy does like, you know, shampoo ads and stuff like female beauty is his specialty. He was like, oh, uh, that's really funny, but it looks so bad. You should really make a short film out of it. Uh, if you let me direct it, I'll shoot it for you. And I was like, okay. And like two weeks later, we started shooting it in my house. And so um, it happened so fast, I didn't change a word of the thing that I had written to be read live, which is why it's sort of done in a cabaret style in the movies to also explain why that fourth wall is being broken. And um, we shot like all one thing, like static, beautiful shot in uh, my living room and we watched it back in 10 minutes of like one shot moving in there, you know, it was just too static and too boring. So we did another day of pickup shots in my bedroom and my bathroom and then uh, needed more breaking up. And so he was like, I know what we're going to do. We're going to show like your wash and dryer, like sad, lonely girl doing her laundry, like sad, lonely girl with her cat. I'm like, I don't think you get the tone of this piece. It's not about sad, lonely girl. It's a comedy. It's not like, oh, poor me. I don't have a boyfriend. It's like, fuck guys is what it is. <laughs> so um, uh, he's like, yeah, whatever. I don't, you can have the footage. I, whatever. I just, I'm out. So I had another friend who could shoot it for me. And so I um, would watch it all cut together and then find places where there were lulls and find a different spot in the house and a different way I could shoot something different to break it up and cut it together. So it moved. So it's pacey, you know? And, um, and so I did. And then I began some, I was programming film festivals at the time I've been programming for like, I programmed for like 20 years for film festivals. And so mm -hmm. I had a lot of connections in that world. So I ended up doing a hundred film festivals with it in two years. I did a hundred film festivals with it. And the wow. awards that I won were not like fucking Oscar. I won like, you know, best short film at some festival you've never heard of in Idaho, you know, but it won like, like 20, a lot, it won a bunch of, you know, awards no one's ever heard of, but still it's nice acknowledgement. Right. And, um, and it's hard to make something, it's hard. Short films are sort of a really special thing uh, there. It's hard to tell a story in under 10 minutes and or especially even if you can do it under, under five, you're a lock to get into every um, festival you submit to because a really good, very short film is, hard to find um so it did well and then someone at the end of that said hey i know a book agent who's friends with jackie collins and blah, blah, blah. so i went and met him and he's like this film's really funny if you can expand upon it if you can make this into a full-length novel um i can get you a three book deal and i was like well watch that happen and i started writing the book that day and um i wrote it in eight weeks wow i wrote, I wrote it uh, if you tell me there's, a, there's a, a check at the end of a tunnel watch me get through that fucking tunnel as fast as possible. So I wrote it really fast. Uh, that guy and my agent had a falling out. So that guy was, went away. So they, that three book deal from the Jackie Collins guy never manifested, but the book did. And so um, what I did was I submitted it to, I just Googled the most powerful book agents, literary agents in New York and submitted it blind to 10 of them. One of them said, yes. Uh, and so they started submitting it. And then the feedback was, everyone's always oh, really funny. Oh, it's Chelsea Handler. It's really great and funny, but not, it's, but not for us, not for us, not for us. And the general feedback was that it, the, the premise that I started the book initially was some girl realizes she does that stupid deal with her male friend that if we're not married by a certain point in time, we'll marry each other. Yeah is dumb but i just needed a launching point to get the book written and i didn't want to sit there wait i didn't write an outline i wrote a totally stream of consciousness i just wrote two thousand words a day seven days a week for eight weeks and i got the book done um so people were saying oh the problem is it's got this really romantic comedy setup but then it gets really dark as you go into it so people who want a romantic comedy are not going to like what they get once they start reading and people who are going to like where the book goes aren't going to get there because they're not going to like how it starts. So you need to fix that. You need to either go mainstream or go dark. 
And so I went dark and I rewrote about 50% of it. That took another eight weeks. And I still couldn't sell it. I still got, um, it's really smart and funny, smart and funny, not for us. So the thing with comedy is similar to the thing with cooking. Everyone's like, well, I need to write a cookbook, write a cookbook. Well, there's a couple of reasons why I don't write a cookbook. One, cookbooks have to have color pictures. Cookbooks are incredibly expensive to produce. And I, I self-published my book and that cost me like five grand to everything to have done. I haven't made that money back, by the way. Um, a, a cookbook would cost 40 grand, you know, to, it's, it's just impossible. And there are much more, you have to write, people don't realize cookbooks have a lot of text in them that you never read, but you have, it's all there. They all have a ton of shit in the beginning. Um, uh, who was I going with that? So that's why I don't write a cookbook, but um, I lost my train of thought on that. I'm sorry. That's okay. The book was really good. It's called Bathing in the Single Girl. If anyone's out there listening and watching, you could probably still find it out there or you, you can, can order it. On it's on Amazon and it forever will be because I, I handle it. So it's, a, I, I think it's in such a, such a state that, that um, even if I die, uh, which eventually I will, I think it'll still be there because it's, it's print on demand. So it's, they, that's the, that's the charm of a self-published book is they haven't, they didn't print 40,000 of them sitting in a warehouse somewhere. They're printed when you order them. So that that file oh. just sits on Amazon forever. Doesn't cost me anything. Doesn't cost them anything. You order a book, they print it and they send it to you. Um, about the book for a second, some of the stories and the characters and the, the uh, how do I ask this question? Is a lot of this book a personal book or is it fiction? Uh, hold on, I'm refreshing my coffee. <laughs> both because i know you probably had to change the names of the of the it's, the men in your life oh yeah anybody any of the men that have, that inspired any of those stories i changed everything around their physicalities what they do for work their names everything in it because it's incredibly unflattering portrayal of almost everybody male um and i don't hate men i love men it's just this it's funnier to be mean <laughs> than to be nice. Um, and so, yeah, I don't want any of the guys that, I don't want anyone anyone in it to recognize themselves. I want them all to have plausible deniability and go, well, that, that sounds, I did say that sentence, but that the rest of it's not me yet. That's not me. So this stuff's stolen. I, I, I'll tell you, it's, it's like, uh, I, the stuff that's true is probably the stuff you think isn't true and vice versa. It's really weird. It's like, hmm. see people and they're like, oh my God, are you Christina Lee? I'm like, yeah, no, you're not. No, you're not. Okay, no, I'm not. Yeah, you are. Yeah, they want to believe what they want to believe. And I wrote it uh, in, a, in the first person on purpose. I knew people would think it was me. It's not me. I knew everyone would think it was me though, which made it a little bit braver because that the people that book, the character everyone thinks is me is kind of an asshole. And a lot of really humiliating things happen. <laughs> Terror. So, uh, yeah. only, yeah, people think that that's my story. Is it was? It was I, I'll take credit for being brave for that. So, so no one ever figured out that they were in the book and came and asked you if that was them that you were talking about. Wow, that's good. The other charm is most people don't read. So, <laughs> well, I read every single line in the book and I loved it. So, I might have to go back and read it again because it was a few years ago that I read the book. But I, I had it and I wanted to bring it up. So the I want to, I want to interject. It's it's the thing I'm proudest of in my entire life. It's incredible. It's entirely a one person job. I did this. If you hate the book, I get all the blame. If you love it, I get all the credit. It's a book. It was written in 2010, 2011. And language has evolved a long way, even just in those years. I don't I, I you know, I I feel like there's a lot of moments in that book that might get me canceled um, because <laughs> Not everything ages well. Um, my mother warned me about a bunch of stuff that I put in there in the time in the moment and said, "You might not want to use this particular phrase. You might want to use these words." And I was like, "You know, thank you for the advice, but people talk like that. People are imperfect and talk in imperfect ways, and they say shitty shit all the time." Um, I'm not writing a book about perfect people. I'm writing a book about assholes, and so male and female. You know, everybody's everyone's a dick in this book. So. Um, so my defense, when you if you read something you're offended by, it's fiction and uh, a book about people that never misspeak or never misbehave would not be a fun book. True, very true. 
Um, two of the things that you did in your past, 90210 and Chucky, have kind of have re have re been born again. Can you talk about that and what happened? And if you expected either one of those things to happen, and where you see them going, if anywhere now? I know Chucky is a TV show now, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Well, well, I heard you. You asked uh, Jamie and Chris uh, in your interview with, with, with SSD interview if they ever foresaw that forty years later people would still give a shit. And the answer is, is always no. There's no possible way you could ever know 40 years ago or 30 years ago what would come back around. Uh, in the case of Child's Play, uh, I wasn't in Child's Play 3, so I had no expectation of ever being involved in the franchise again, and I wasn't for 30 years. So you don't expect it. Uh, and 90210, when, you know, um, when the reboot came in, in 2019, I couldn't have seen that coming down the pike, you know, in 1995. Um I'm incredibly grateful they both did, though, and um, and in the in the case of 90210, it's especially flattering because there were ten years of that show with a fucking fuck ton of guest stars, many of whom and and regulars whose names that you know that show went on forever with a huge cast. So there's a, so many people they could have chosen from to bring back outside of the seven surviving. Uh, regulars to have been one and that pissed off a huge chunk of the 90210 universe like why her she sucks she only did like 13 episodes and I fucking hate her and why her um but you know she did I did 13 episodes ultimately over three years and the characters the character is significant because she here's the legacy of that character and why I think she was chosen is that there was nobody in 1991 on that show that stood for anybody that felt uh, other than whether that was their punk rock or they're gay or they're Jewish in an Irish neighborhood or they're poor in a rich neighborhood or all the ways you can feel other than there was nobody on that show that stood in that place really. And so when Emily Valentine showed up, everybody that was felt disenfranchised in any way, that, that's, that's, that's the character that's me. That's the character that's me. And for little girls who are not the pretty little girls in school, not the, you know, not the, Kelly and Brenda's of school saw the offbeat girl get the get the hot guy, which made that was a huge win for all the you know all the misfit toys in the world to have Emily get Brandon was a big score and a bit really validating I think for a lot of people. So when the people approach me about that show, it's always somebody who was punk rock or gay or whatever, which I was punk rock in school too. I was the outsider in school too, which I think that I think that brought authenticity to that character that people feel. You can always tell when they dress up somebody who's not punk rock and make them be the punk rock character. I, I don't think anyone ever doubted that I was the punk rock character in anything I ever did, you know? So, because um, it was, I was wearing my own clothes and stuff. I wasn't wearing somebody, they went to Target and bought something that looks punky. I was wearing my own stuff, that black leather hat that I wore in, in Child's Play and I wore in 90210. I owned that hat before I even became an actor. It was really, truly my hat. I still have it. Um, so the legacy of that character is that people that I people that I include myself among felt spoken for on that show by her. So that's an incredibly awesome legacy. I think it's, and that's why that I think she was the one that came back. I mean, there's an infinity of beautiful girls and boys that were on that show that didn't make a mark, you know? Um, so, that was super flattering. With Chucky, I was, it's not as surprising that I would come back because uh, Child's Play 2, if you took a, uh, if you took a um, poll about everyone's rate the ch- seven Child's Play movies from favorite to least favorite, Child's Play 2 would win the, um, would win the contest significantly, more than Child's Play 1, which is in second place. Um, it's, it's, it's most people's favorite. And so, and, and my character, so significant, just went by the wayside for so long. It was just, it was just inevitable that she had to come back and be explained, you know? So 2019 and 2019, they invite me to 90210 to come back and play with these actors I've known for 30 years, some of whom I consider family. It was unbelievably awesome. They gave me the best, I had the best character on, on the reboot of 90210. They gave me the greatest shit to do. I was so fucking happy there. They were going to make me a regular because they were all, everyone was all happy, happy, joy, joy. And then fans gave the show the finger, fans hated it. Um, and to, for two, that was 2019 and 2021 to be invited to another show that I, project that I'd done 30 years ago to play the same character 30 years later to have that happen twice in two years, Yeah, winning the lottery twice in two years. It's incredible. It's a, it's a 
impossibility that that would happen, and it did. And Don Mancini and Jennifer Tilly and Alex Vincent, I've known them all since 1989. I knew Jennifer before either one of us had been involved in the Chucky universe. So, um, and I got to do that sort of secret cameo thing at the end after the credits and cult of Chucky. So. I was teed up for what came next, and I knew that was coming. Um, at the conclusion of season one of Chucky, Don Mancini, who's the godfather of all things Chucky, asked me, you know, it was the best part of coming back. And I said, I got to play a 50-something-year-old woman who's a fucking badass. And I got to do that on um, the 90210 reboot, too. Uh, it's really, women my age don't get to come. You don't get play. You don't get to play sexy things. Jennifer's playing sexy. Jennifer Tilly, she's, you know, a little bit older than I am, and she's playing fucking bodacious, vampy, gorgeous woman <laughs> playing a fucking badass assassin. Women our age don't get cast like that. And so it's incredibly gratifying. And Don said, well, what's the thing you have in common with Nano 2 and with this? What do these two projects have in common for you? Gay men are the showrunners. Gay men aren't afraid of women. Gay men give women awesome shit to do. Wow. Uh, is there something that you want to do that you haven't done yet that you're thinking about doing or that's in the works for the future? I'd like to lose 25 pounds. That's been in the works for a while. <laughs> it's going nowhere, but I'm trying. <laughs> I'm thinking about it at least. Uh, I, bought, I bought a Peloton, it's sitting up there. Um, now what I wanna do is make a living. Really, it's practical for me at this. It's always been practical, I, you know, cause that's what I do to make a living. So, you know, people, why did you take, you know, people, a big misconception people have of actors is that their resume reflects their taste in things. Your resume only reflects your taste in projects if you're Jennifer Lawrence or, you know, Ryan Gosling. Then you can pick and choose what you're doing. Uh, and when, and back in the day when I was doing well and was young and still could, I could end, I could have ended up with a body of work that, that would be important. Um, you weren't allowed to do TV and movies. You had to kind of pick. You weren't like, if you were a TV actor, you weren't allowed to sort of even really read for anything important. And, and um, so I turned a lot of TV down, trying to like, try, I turned, Aaron Spelling offered me pilots and things. And I'd be like, no, I'm trying to get into movies, trying to get into movies, uh, which is the one regret I have because I never got into movies really, despite the fact that everyone goes, you're so edgy, you're too edgy for TV, you'll be a movie star or you'll not TV. And that's not what happened. So I regret saying no to some TV. Um, but the but the but the opportunity for me to end up with a body of work like Jack Nicholson or something that ship has sailed. I'm never gonna uh, fifty. I'll be fifty nine in two months. Um, I'm never gonna develop a body of work that I'm proud of, <laughs> which is a sad thing to say, but it's the truth. I'm not gonna end up with six, seven movies that are classic films. It's not gonna happen. Uh, and so, really, it's just practical. I would like to. Uh, just keep working and keep and not ever have to get a job at 7-Eleven. Are you going to stay in California for the? Of course. Yeah, I wish yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah, no, Boston and I don't get along. I, I'm really, really glad I'm from Boston. I think Boston's uh, character building in every way. I always say people, if you watch uh, movies or t depictions of the stereotypical New Yorker, rude and brash and pissed off, that's not a New Yorker. New Yorkers are fucking great. That's the Bostonian that you're seeing there. Bostonians are the cranky ones. Um, but uh, but I, but that served me so well. I'm really, I would not trade being where I'm from for anything. And I would also not move back there for anything. <laughs> it's, 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 a, I don't recognize it, which is a big turnoff, you know? Um, I don't, it, it's hard. It's a hard town for me. I, um, I don't miss it. I miss the people in it. I don't miss the city. You can always visit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you, Christine. Appreciate it. Not at all. Good luck to you. All right, you too. Thanks. I hope I wasn't too negative. <laughs> no, no, you're great. Thank you. All right, cool.
Gotta stick together like glue. That was SSD controlled. Uh, a band, Christina Elise McCarthy, was around a lot in the early days, as we heard in our interview. And we also found out, some people probably knew, knew this, I didn't. Uh, or maybe I was just, just found out that our best friend is none other than Jamie Sharapa. Can't think of too many people that would be better to have as a best friend. Okay, maybe Angie Sharapa. <laughs> They're both awesome. Um, that was different. I don't know if I did a good enough job on that interview, but Christine certainly did. And I hope you enjoyed it. All right. Well, you can reach out to me anytime at twistedrico at gmail.com. If you're a band or artist, singer, songwriter, whatever you want to send music over, please do. We also have an Instagram page, a Facebook page, threads, YouTube page where you can actually watch the Zoom interview that Christine and I just did. And there's also that fabulous TikTok page where you can watch clips from the show and other cool stuff. All right, that's going to do it uh, this time, folks. And I think it might be time maybe for me to wish everyone a happy holiday because I think, um, you know, I might you know might not hear from me until after the holidays now. Uh, and, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, you know, all of that stuff. What, however you celebrate, I hope you have a great time with your family, friends, or whatever. All right. Till the next time we say goodbye, this is Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. Keep the rock and roll alive.